0: For a while, the worst thing that had ever happened to me was a bunch of the other kids teasing. I'd hope that someone with your last name would know that snap judgments made on genetics are faulty at best. Individuals are so much more than just- Is it me or is it dark in here? La'an? Is this the only light you have? Number one to Dr. Mabenga? Commander? I think we have a new problem.
1: Transfer complete.
0: Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me in the empty library... This is Tyler Orton, tweaking his freak... (laughs) And we're here this week to tackle the third episode of Strange New Worlds,
1: Ghosts of Elyria. Okay, so Cam, it's not like I I found myself frustrated by this episode. It's not like I didn't like this episode. I just think this is far and away the weakest out of the three episodes that Strange New Worlds has delivered. Um, it <laughs> seemed strangely derivative of every Star Trek trope you could ever imagine, from a transportation a transporter accident to some sort of alien virus. You also have um, just characters being derivative of each other, in which Una is revealed to be an augment of some sort, somebody who's genetically modified, just like another main character from the show, La'an, and also another main character from the uh, series, you know, uh, from the franchise, I should say, one Julian Bashir. I mean, props for the celebrity casting of one Timothy Chalamet as Ensign Lance. (laughs) I have that in my notes. (laughs) Yeah, but um, I don't know. Other than that, it's like at least this episode didn't do the thing that we got with Picard all the time, which is like the, the. this actually had a beginning, middle, and end, and I could kind of, like, say, okay, that's fine. I'm looking forward to next week. But this one, it it, it definitely underwhelmed after what I thought were pretty st- two strong outings to kick off the series.
0: I think I was a little more positive on this one in that... It's the kind of the classic Star Trek trope, as you said, you know, you have here like the the virus on the ship, which we've seen a billion times. And there's definitely stuff that's a little derivative. The whole Pike and Spock in the uh, empty library was very All Our Yesterdays from the original series. There was a lot of elements that I'm like, I've seen this before. But I guess what I liked about this one was it took the virus concept, which typically is more of just kind of a crisis story on the ship. And found ways to make it very character-driven, and had revelations we would learn about, you know, Una and Doctor Embega, and actually like tied it to that and made it more of a developing character situation, which typically not the case. So in that regard, I found it very interesting and watchable, and I actually had takeaways from it. Other than when I looked at the, I actually watched the preview for this episode um, before watching it, and my. Thoughts were like, oh, is this going to be us basically just sitting down to talk about an hour of there's a virus on the ship?
1: Okay. So for me, I thought it was mostly plot driven up until maybe the last 10 minutes of the episode mm-hmm. in which we got kind of a, a return of the king deal where it seemed as if there was like five different endings to the episode. And that's when we got more into the character stuff with regards to Una and Dr. Mbenga. I, I just, but then even that, I, I just Dr. Mabenga was just acting so weird and then the whole transporter buffer dealio I was kind of like this is like so does he just transporter every like just for a few minutes a day so that she doesn't die from leukemia is that, the, it, did I track that correctly?
0: Or is it just to spend quality time like he just keeps her in the pattern buffer but bring, brings her out every now and again but yes has to keep her in, a, in the stasis because she could die I mean it's a good thing this man is wearing blue because he's basically Mr. Freeze
1: well, <laughs> true. Um how old is this girl? Like she could be like 40 for all we know at this point, right? <laughs> hm, that's a good question. How old do you think Dr. Mbega is? I think Mbenga is I think he's probably 40. So, and the kid was what okay. like 8 or 9, so
0: Yeah, so I mean it, it would be amazing if he was
1: like 80. <laughs> Because then we'd have a lot of questions about how old she right. is, but... Maybe maybe he's an Augment, you know, like, that's why he doesn't Ooh. age. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're going to... Okay, well, this is the question I have for you. This is the question I wrote down in my notes. Is every character, like, walking around with a dark secret? Is that what they're going to do to define all these characters on Strange New Worlds? Because that's what keeps happening. You know, we've got that with... Uh, Every time we get a bit of a showcase for these characters, that's what's revealed there. And so I just wonder if by the end of it, we find out that everybody is some sort of genetically modified person that has snuck into Starfleet somehow.
0: Well, it does seem in the era of the Kurtzman Trek, it's like characters are defined by trauma or something serious in their past. And of course, that was the case here as well. And I guess where I found this one a little more tolerable was that there was kind of a larger theme about just like keeping secrets and how they can actually cause a lot of harm so it felt like thematically they had an idea there versus just you know introducing it like oh uh by the way uh this character has trauma okay like sure thing in this case i was a little more tolerant but uh, it is the sort of thing where i go is this really necessary like you look at ds9 which you know could be a very dark show but it's not like every character on the show was just tormented
1: Uh, a lot of them were i guess come to think of it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even a character, well, yeah, but you know, it, it wasn't, it's interesting, because I think about a character like Jake Sisko, you know, and he had like the death of his mother, and it wasn't as if they latched onto Jake forever being traumatized by that moment. No. It, it's something that he dealt with, and you have the Jennifer Sisko mirror universe version who comes, and that's kind of a, you know, that, that's going to hit him where it hurts there, you know, uh, just kind of the manipulation that we see. But it wasn't as if that was his defining characteristic throughout the series. And, and the thing is, um, before they had the Dr. Mabenga revelation there, I was actually, like, very early on in the episode, I was like, okay, so we're, like, two and a half episodes in. What is his defining characteristic? Like, what is his personality at this point? Because I get a sense for, you know, Nurse Chapel, Spock, Pike, uh, uh, Una, these are all legacy characters, though. And I think the only new character that they've really kind of established is, like, I've got a good grip on who she is, um, you know, is, say, uh, lawn at this point. And so, look, we'll get more time with the characters. I think they did a better job giving um, Hammer more screen time versus uh, last episode. Uh, he was fun, you know, like when the yeah. transporter chief was, um, how did you do that? <laughs> he dryly responded, I am a genius. And the thing is, <laughs> I couldn't tell if he was being arch versus whether he's being serious. And I think that's fun, like not really knowing. And it's kind of, it's it's almost kind of the, the Spock that we know from the original series as well, kind of pulling lines like that.
0: Yeah, I think Hammer's going to be an interesting challenge for them in that he's a very low energy character and a very dry character. And I'm looking forward to seeing how they navigate that because you look at a show like Voyager and look at how they did not know what to do with Tuvok. And I'm hoping Hammer, they can find some really compelling things and make an episode built around him really interesting without falling into the, you know, this character is boring trap, which
1: I think Tuvok fell into. Well, he also had another one of my favorite lines uh, from this where, uh, you know, Una gives him that look and he's like, I can sense your expression. And she replies back, I know you can. And it's just like, it's just kind of, they're having fun with the characters. Look, I, I, I know that I'm not super high on this episode, but I do like the fact that they are having fun with the characters without making them cry Every single episode, which is a nice change of pace versus Discovery. Well, I like that they're sitting down and talking about their issues. You know, you have that scene
0: of Una and Lon sitting down just in the, you know, the mess hall or whatever it is at the end of the episode and talking about, like, their relationship, which I very much appreciated versus, like, the Discovery approach, which is like a tossed-off line and then on to the next scene. It felt like this relationship between Lan and Una is something we could see more of in the future and something I would like to see more of because they gave me... Interesting material there. I don't know that I need to see Una explaining who Khan is to Lan in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that was eye rolling. Um, but uh, other than that, it it was like the
1: dynamics there were interesting. But they did establish we, we had a lot of question marks in episode one. You know that Laan is in fact an ancestor of Khan, not some sort of mm-hmm. contemporary who is also in you know like a sleeper ship. Uh, I I don't exactly know why they found it necessary to make the connection between those two characters. You know, what, like why, why give her the Noonien Singh title or last name there? I I hope it adds up to something worthwhile there. I I still find it weird that we suddenly have two genetically modified characters with super strength on one ship. Not not to mention just within the main cast of a ship like that. That one's gonna kind of irk me for a little bit. But I also wonder if that kind of explains. A little bit of back in the cage where they're you know pike is saying like yeah she's not like other women or something like that yeah you know but mind you the cage does take place i think like five or six years before this one does so i don't know i i this one is i, I kind of struggled with this one you know even it, i i like when star trek characters solve problems because they're super super smart but it was a very fortunate turn of events and what we got a cure here. It's just, it wasn't any of the characters' ingenuity. It was just dumb luck that Una could have been used as a genetic conduit for warp core radiation. You know, it's just like when dumb luck f- solves a problem, I'm just like, huh. Like that, that's j- just made me kind of like rub my chin a little.
0: That was my maybe biggest gripe with the episode was that the solution to the problem was kind of like blibbity blabbityed out. And I'm like, yeah, what? Like, huh? Like, you see Lon and Una, you know, in, like, was it in the warp core room? Was that where it was, yeah. in the engineering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, Una lights up, and then it's, like, the next scene's, like, talking about, like, chimeras or something. And I'm like, huh? Like, what? The two of them combined
1: or something? Like, I don't understand what just happened. It, well, I, I, it's... Okay, I think what it was is she was able to ser- serve as a chimeric genetic cure for everyone on the ship. They like I, Nurse Chapel was able to replicate whatever happened somehow and give it to the rest of the crew in time. You know, I also so we have the line that's kind of tossed off. I think it was Nurse Chapel who said it, but she described people as light addicts. Um, yeah. Do you think they dealt with addiction was this their attempt to deal with like addiction issues in like a, a serious way? I don't think so. I think it was more just the gimmick
0: of figure out that these people desperately wanted to be near light I-, I didn't get that there was a stronger like you know substance abuse allegory yeah. going on or anything like I that i <laughs> not like
1: <'cause> otherwise <laughs> it's just funny, like really although i do like the-, the fact that hammer was driven to transporting the mantle <laughs> from the core of a planet up into the transporter just to get light i was just like good god man there must be easier ways of doing this well it felt like um the degrees
0: to which people became obsessed with the light were very different like you had yeah. um you know hammer doing that you had timothy chalamet smashing his head through like a panel in the uh, hallway and yet other people just seemed to want to like stand in front of like light bulbs
1: well yeah i like how they had like a little campfire going in the cadets bunk room there um it was cool to see that they are in a bunk room, uh, uh what we saw with lower decks. You know, that's kind of like okay, it's a nice mm. little nod. I don't know how overt a nod it, it was, but um, I don't know. It, it was uh, I w- I would stay in that bunk room uh, personally.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that looks like fun. It's a yeah. party every night, yeah. Um with roomies. <laughs> We've seen so many gimmicks on various Star Trek shows with these viruses that take over. You know, you think of <laughs> Fascination, the DS9 episode with everyone, like, falling in love. Or the Naked Time, Naked Now combination where it's kind of like everyone's drunk or on some sort of substances. Here, it's like, I actually really like the light concept. It reminded me a lot of the movie Sunshine, actually. Um, where, Especially with, like, what Hemmer was doing reminded me of, like, the villain of Sunshine at the end of that Danny Boyle film. But, um... It's like, I don't know that the light thing was just, it felt like they were missing just a little bit. Like, it needed an extra degree to make it that memorable versus just kind of a gimmick of the week for a virus episode.
1: Well, I was thinking like, huh, what can we do to save on budget? I know, light bulbs. Mm, Yeah, and it was, like, I feel like initially
0: they were making it scary, Like, when you have Timothy Chalamet smashing his head through, you know, glass, it's like, okay, they're going for more of a horror vibe. This was a more serious episode, I thought, than the previous two. But yet, like, Dr. Ambega seems to be infected as well, but he's just, like, kind of suffering through it. It's like the idea of people fully losing control, like Timothy Chalamet, it seemed to be very hit or miss. Some people were. Other people were just like, I just got to
1: hold back. Just got to hold back. Although I do like how Dr. Mbenga his way of dealing with Hammer was to switch the lights on and off. I was just like <laughs> I was like okay. Was he trying to clear out a bar at like after last call or something? Like Yeah.
0: What I liked about Hammer was though the way he delivers his lines. It's almost impossible to tell if he was under the spell. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's, yeah. he's kind of unreadable. I thought that made him actually really interesting because in that scene where he has the uh the the chunk of the planet core, it's like is he rational? Who who could really tell?
1: True. Now okay, so uh, the other thing, okay, <clears throat> I was thinking at first though with regards to Hammer's reaction is like he uh he's blind and uh, so I was like well, can't even see light, but then they kind of establish it's kind of is more about vitamin D, so it's being exposed to light and you know, that kind of got me thinking of uh, COVID 19 and how, uh, you know, you, you want to get, uh, you know, out in the sun and all that, less chance of uh, transmission. But then they also went, they kind of, okay, here's what, what I'm getting at, though, is that there's kind of a uh, scratching the surface a little bit when they're like, we have to go into full lockdown. Yeah. We've got like some sort of disease going on here. And, you know, th- this was being filmed in Toronto. When uh, Ontario was kind of going a little nutso with their um, lockdown measures, it um, didn't really make sense to much of the rest of Canada. and I, I just wonder how that permeated you know some of the thinking. who knows when the script was written versus when you know kind of the lockdown measures were being take uh, being taken place. but uh, we heard from like uh, I think an interview with Anson Mount that um, I think it was on Star Trek day. Last year, uh September 2021, I think he was just talking about how like the 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 cast didn't really get the opportunity to kind of hang out outside of the sets. It was kind of like you're on sets, and that's when you got to socialize so i I just wonder how much kind of COVID-19 is kind of influencing some of the story points or or kind of ideas, not so much as it being kind of an overt kind of discussion about you know the, the pandemic necessarily. Right. And well a couple points there. Number 1, uh the fact that this was
0: this, you know, season was shot during pandemic restrictions, it seems a lot less obvious than Star Trek Discovery where characters were all in separate rooms from one another. <laughs> um yeah. so props to uh Strange New Worlds there. But yeah, like it felt like they wanted to kind of comment on sort of pandemic concepts when they're, you know, when they're saying lockdown. You can't throw that into a script in a TV show in this particular point in time without expecting the audience to draw that connection. Um, But it didn't feel like there was maybe a larger point, more of just kind of like touching on the general just vibe that people could relate to. Yeah.
1: Um, Another great line from this that I was very impressed by is when they're down in the library and Spock says, I'm arming us with knowledge. You know, those are the (laughs) um, kind of tossed off lines. You know, like I, I like it when like the lines are not, you know, Dun, 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 psh, kind of where it's mm. like really trying to go for a punchline, but it's more kind of the, uh, you know, throwaway lines that I think work much better when you're, especially when you're just trying to get like humor out of the show.
0: Yeah, I like that little bit with him and Pike. I mean, you're going to have them sidelined, obviously, for the purposes of your A story, but they found fun ways to use those characters. I liked Pice- uh, Pacing Pike. Um, that was kind of a fun little bit of a character insight there. And everything they had there with the um the Illyrians who were like flying through the sky in the clouds like, like fire creatures. It reminded me like Star Trek is based on all these like frontier stories and everything and I just kept thinking of like that Ghost Riders in the Sky song when they had that sort of imagery and I'm like I, I wonder if that was intentional to kind of work in some like kind of western themes back into Star Trek storytelling because it that was such a big part of a lot of the earlier Star Trek shows, you know, DS9 was very Western story heavy, T- uh, TOS very much so, but that's not the sort of thing you really see on Picard or um,
1: Discovery. It felt like a little bit of an injection of that here. How come we haven't gotten our North Star yet on Star Trek Picard, Cam? Um d- Careful what you ask for. <laughs> I, I want all season three to be a, a, an homage to Westerns, like, and a very overt homage. I wouldn't... Okay,
0: hold on now. Now, okay, we're thinking. I'm thinking of Picard here. Season one, we had their like little heist where they're dressing up as, uh, what well, like Picard well, there's was a French pimp. Um, Yeah, yeah. Rios um, was a that's... pimp.
1: Um, Picard was a French stereotype. Um, oh, <laughs> Seven of Nine was a serial killer. I remember her dressing up and doing that. Yeah, uh. <laughs> that's sort of like I guess their piece of the action. I guess. Um,
0: and then in season two, we had the like bada bing, bada bang episode where they're like doing a heist, you know, at the gala kind of thing. So I wouldn't rule out that season
1: three, Picard is going to have at least one episode that has them in dress up. Kind of, or maybe a great train rob- robbery episode. You know, we can get the return of Durango Troy from, uh, the, uh, uh, <laughs> what is it? A Fistful of Datas? Yeah.
0: What do you think is more likely, um, something like that or are we going to see the return of like dixon hill
1: uh i say dixon hill more likely to get a return there i'd say so uh okay i mean we did get that homage the matlock sort of stuff in episode two of season one the, which was not a very good episode which one was that Remember, like he goes to um, Dodge's old apartment and they look for oh. clues. I remember getting yeah. incredibly lost about what the hell they were talking about in, in, while they're doing kind of their own investigative work there. It was just like techno babble. It was nonsensical techno babble.
0: That's right. That's right. That was where it was the first sign of like,
1: hmm, it's
0: a little concerning. Yeah. <laughs> Not the most confident second step there, yeah. but uh, I'm sure it's all gonna be good after this. <laughs> Maps and legends. That, that's the name of the episode.
1: There. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, but um, no, like I thought just, I don't know, some of the concepts here, I've seen them from uh, before, they felt very familiar, like the whole, the Illyrians are these things flying through the sky is very like, again, all yesterdays. I know like when you see trailers for this episode or watch the episode, it's clearly evoking stuff like Naked Time, but there was a lot of all yesterdays in here as well. I don't know how I feel about this, because it's something that they've done. The last three episodes, I've been able to pretty much pick out the reference points for, like, TOS episodes. And on one hand, I kind of enjoy it, just as a fan of TOS. But on the other, I'm kind of looking to this show to break some new ground, like, come up with their own concepts, and not feel like they have to rely on evoking classic Star Trek as
1: much. Well, Cameron, it's called Strange New World, it's not Strange New Ground. That's also true. Yes. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought the Illyrian spirits, I, I thought that was a little silly to me. Uh, but l- let me ask you this. I've got an episode in mind. If you had to compare this one to another Star Trek episode, anywhere in the franchise, um, what would it be? Um, I think
0: I would probably have said just overall naked time. Naked now is like really goofy and comedic, but naked uh, time treats its like premise pretty seriously. And I
1: would say probably that one. Okay. I was kind of getting Genesis vibes from it, uh, less so, at least in the beginning when they're pushing more towards the horror vibes there. Um, And then by the end, I was getting, you know, Dr. Bashir, I presume, vibes, you know, with um, uh, Una going to uh, Chris and saying, I resign my commission. And he's like, not on my watch. (laughs) Has anything come of this, though? Because, you know, the the whole excuse in in Deep Space Nine was that uh, Bashir was genetically modified against his will when he was a child. He had no choice in this matter. Well, Una, well, she did it... Uh, I, well, I, I, it's unclear to me whether Illyrians do this from childhood. Do they do it when they get older? Are they born that way? That's how they adapt to different planets? You know, that that's a little unclear to me. But what, what exactly is the kind of rationale that would exist there for her being able to retain her commission despite Line through her teeth with regards to everything. Just thinking about about an episode like Drumhead, in which the yeah. the uh, crew member who is like one quarter Romulan, you know, uh, he said on his application that he was one quarter Vulcan, and that's when there was the threat of him losing his entire job.
0: Yeah, um, that is an excellent question, and I I, I guess it so much depends on how they deal with it going forward. I think part of the issue was with number one, they want to find a thing. That made her distinct. And I think it was when I read the first Discovery novel. God help me. Why did I do that? But anyways, (laughs) when I read the first Star Trek Discovery spinoff novel. They acknowledged Una as alien in that book. I don't remember if they said Illyrian. But they definitely emphasized she was not human. And so it felt like they were trying to find an angle on that character. And it seems like they're doing the same thing here. And, you know, you referenced that line earlier of Pike in the cage saying she's not like, you know, other women, which at the time, of course, was a just somewhat sexist line. Yeah. But I think you can kind of now kind of headcanon it that Pike just recognized there was something different about her, but maybe couldn't put his finger on what it was. So I'm hoping that the reason they did this was that going forward, maybe we do have an episode dealing with, you know, Starfleet questioning her being on the ship. I don't know if we will, but I, w- yeah. I would I'd be down for it. Um, But at the same time, I, I think it may be for us to now have an avenue to just ex- explore with this character. Like, we don't really know that much about Illyrians. Uh, we, you know, apparently they can turn into fire ghosts. And we saw some Illyrians in Enterprise in the episode Damage, but like, I don't recall them turning into fire ghosts or anything like that. So I feel like we know very little. So going forward, we can We can kind of explore, hopefully in Una, things we didn't think we would explore when this show started.
1: Well, number one did say that Illyrians are different depending on the planet, because instead of terraforming a planet, they genetically modify themselves to adapt to a planet. And And the question I've got swimming in my head, is she actually an alien or is she a human who is genetically modified? And, you know, if you call yourself Illyrian, that's mostly kind of more of a cultural thing, you know, because she has, she looks like a human, she has a human name, unless she really went all out and, like, kind of faked her identity just to get into Starfleet.
0: Or was she, like, because genetic modifications are such a big part of the society, the Illyrians we saw on Enterprise had, like, you know, forehead ridges and all that sort of thing. Is she a case where she genetically manipulated herself or her, whatever, her planet did this to look more human? To pass as human or something? I could buy that as well. It feels like we need a follow-up episode to this fairly shortly, talking a little bit more about exactly what her Illyrian nature is. Because it's one thing to reveal it here. It gave us kind of a, you know, quote-unquote shocking moment or something, um, and a revelation and a connection with Lon. But we need to know more about what this actually means. Because, like, when you look at Spock, You go way back to the start of Star Trek, not necessarily the cage, which is a little shaky, but you go back to the first episode that aired of TOS. They're emphasizing, like, kind of what a Vulcan is and how they
1: behave. I kind of would appreciate that with the Illyrians as well. So what we do know, though, is she has super strength, and it was hilarious Mm -hmm. watching her carry Hammer, uh, (laughs) because it was clearly a straw-filled dummy that uh, was over (laughs) her shoulder, and then it's hilarious where it is a very clumsy, like, edit where they cut to her in sick bay She's carrying the obviously fake dummy, and then they cut to her again. And then they have the uh, uh, Hammer as played by the actor uh, Bruce Horvick, and then she's placing him on the sick bay table. I just, I got a chuckle out of that clumsy edit that they did there. It was very uh, film school 101 sort of stuff.
0: That whole scene of her carrying him down the hallway with dramatic music playing, <laughs> I was, like, laughing, and I'm like, I, I don't know what they want me to take
1: from this. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, they, they they meant to make us go, and I mean, it worked on me at least, like, go, huh, she has super strength, you know, what? what's that all about? I thought this was going to be some sort of mystery that was not going to be answered until the end of the season. I can't tell you how thankful it is that we have a Star Trek show where they don't drag things out over the course of five mm-hmm. or six episodes. They told us within five or six minutes, if not less. Um, you know, but okay, so who does not possess super strength aboard the, uh, the main cast? Like, we know that Una does. We know that Laon does. We know that Spock does. Does Hammer have super strength?
0: I don't think so, but he does have those, like, psychic abilities. I would say that's more his thing.
1: But we do know that uh, the Andorians are stronger than humans, right? Yes, Andorians are, yeah. And so he's Enar, which th- those are kind of cousins of the Andorians. So I wonder if th- it might be revealed at some point, maybe he has uh, super strength too. So that might potentially just leave us with Pike, Uhura, and Mabenga, and Chapel as the only ones without super strength. So it's, it's, it's like half the crew defined by super strength, like UFC fighters pretty much. Also Ortegas, who we don't really know that much about yet. Every look, we're getting like little like um moments with her. She seems like one of the most delightful like uh new characters that they've uh, created for the show. Like I'm I'm enjoying her a lot so far. Well you can't really make any
0: arguments that any of the characters are duds out of the game. Yeah. Whereas like other shows, you can look at some of those seasons, even when you're in like season three or four and be like, this character is kind of a dud. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever talk to me about Kess like that, Cam. <laughs> there's not a single character on this episode or on this uh, series where I wouldn't happily watch, you know, like a, a solo story about them. Every single yeah. one of them is interesting to me, and that's not something Discovery has done very well. Like, uh, there's a lot of characters on there where I'm like, I don't know that I want to watch a whole hour, you know, focused on this on one particular character. But this show has done a really good job in giving them all very like poppy personalities. So it's like, even though I'm kind of annoyed by the constant trauma and you know some of the revelations and stuff it's like in terms of just making characters who are fun to watch they're really succeeding there i think it's almost like an insecurity on their part that they feel they have to do this to make these characters stand out but i'm hoping like they just get more confident as the show goes the reception to the show has been pretty phenomenal and i'm just hoping as they keep going they're like okay okay people like this we can just kind of tell our stories and we can
1: relax with this sort of big dramatic stuff So I I think the info might be out there because critics have uh, been able to review, uh, you know, the first five episodes of the show before it premiered. Uh, I don't know who the next episode is going to focus on. Uh, I was kind of spoiled, you know, a few weeks ago that uh, episode three was going to be focused on number one, and I I was pumped for that. Um, But, you know, uh, for example, I didn't know that episode two is going to focus on Uhura. Uh, Who do you think should uh, get kind of a showcase for episode four? It's interesting in that
0: I thought this episode,
1: when I saw that
0: teaser and it was just showing, like, a you know, a virus on the ship, I genuinely thought this was going to be a Chapel Mbenga uh, mm-hmm. episode um, because that's kind of what the obvious choice would be, you'd think. You know, the medical people would be the ones to solve this issue, and I kind of appreciated they made it an Una showcase because that wasn't what I expected. So, the next one, I'm trying to think of who feels like they need some screen time. Ortegas is obviously... In need of some fleshing out, so um she seems like one you would want to um
1: I feel like, like I that's think the character who needs it, yeah, because dr. Mamega, he he already got kind of the um the defining kind of showcase moment for now in which we better understand the character. Yeah. so I, I think we can probably give it a few more episodes until we uh, maybe give him a showcase episode. I think Ortegas would be fun. i i, I if they kind of switch back and forth, you know, between legacy characters and new characters in which we spend time with i'm totally okay with that although i i would point out the first three episodes it was a lot of uh pike spock uhura and number one so yeah let's yeah. let's get some ortegas action uh next week I, i'm down for that although uh, the first episode was pretty lawn heavy it was so it was, yes. was basically
0: like pike and lawn really were the two leads of that episode in terms of having the story tied around them so um that's why I feel like Ortegas is the one you need to do something. Chapel is, ha- hasn't really gotten a lot to do in an episode yet, so I feel like she's pretty due for an episode. But when you have an episode like this that just aired, which feels kind of medical-driven, I don't know that the next one would be tied to a Nurse Chapel story necessarily.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, is her fiancé going to come visit uh, in a few weeks? Is that going to be what it's all about?
0: <laughs> Was it Dr. Corby or whatever?
1: Yeah. Was that the android guy?
0: Yeah, it From was, What, Dr. what Little Kirby. Girls are Made Of? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I hadn't even thought about him. We're going to meet him at some point, aren't we? I think
1: we got it, though. Like, maybe this is how they
0: meet. Oh, that'd be fun, actually. If we could have... Like, watching it in Strange New Worlds. Yeah. Yeah. He was working... I think it wasn't a secret he was making androids. So, like, maybe yeah. we can have some, like, uh, android wackiness on an episode of Strange New Worlds. That'd be cool.
1: He also... He, like, his... um costume though like the outfit that they got I, I, just the colors that you get from the 1960s and the patterns there i it might be one of my favorite like mad scientist sorts of uh, outfits that we've seen there and cam i think you're a big fan of the android uh, outfits too i'm wearing one right now yeah yeah and by that i'm talking about uh android kirk <laughs> when he's spinning on the wheel buck naked <laughs> it's me on weekends um <laughs> but what clubs
0: are you going to <laughs> You don't want to know. (laughs) But that's something I'm really hoping to see. We haven't seen quite yet on this show is that some of the, like, kind of 60s fashion stuff, like the really colorful fashion you get on the original series that we got in um,
1: uh, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad with Harry Mudd's. With the Baron? Yeah, the Baron and uh, Stella. And the Baron's ship was one of my favorite ship designs that they had that really kind of was kind of reaching back to kind of the 1960s Star Trek ship designs that they would do. And I I want them to do more of that as opposed to kind of like, let's make it as sleek as possible here in this era. Yeah, I'm hoping
0: we can get back to that because the first episode when they went down to the aliens, it was kind of those kind of drab jumpsuit kind of look. And we haven't had that kind of really colorful stuff. And that was so much fun on Discovery. Was that the only time Star Trek Discovery was ever colorful?
1: (laughs) I, I'm racking my brain. I mean, even when they went to the Mirror Universe, it was still kind of ver- very uh, dark and serious Mirror Universe sort of stuff, right? Yep. So. Yeah. yeah okay. I I, honestly, like, uh, it's so weird when we think back of, about it because Magic really kind of fooled us. When that episode aired, you and I, we walked away from that and we were like, oh, Discovery has figured itself out now. The show mm-hmm. has got it going. This is the episode I've always been waiting for with regards to kind of uh, the, this new era of Star Trek. and they just never ever replicated that. Uh, you know, and it, and it was very much kind of a more of a standalone episode. It was a f- it was the funnest episode Star Trek Discovery's ever done. I don't know why they the writers and producers behind the scenes didn't try to emulate that formula not necessarily formula but try to emulate that moving forward
0: well yeah like pick your one episode a season where it could be something lighter and i i don't know like was the response that they got to magic very poor i don't know like i know it doesn't it doesn't have like the highest yeah i know it doesn't have like the highest you know imdb score or whatever but like I don't know. Didn't people like that? Didn't they like seeing the party and the kind of Burnham, um, you know, love story in that one with uh, Ash Tyler? Like, I don't know. It, it seemed like a kind of fun episode. It, honestly, like, if I'm going to throw on a random episode of Discovery, it might be the only one I would ever throw on.
1: Uh, that one, or maybe If Memory Serves, which is also oh, yeah, yeah. like more of a fun episode. So I'm just looking through, and yeah, it, it looks as if... Uh, with regards to IMDB scores that uh, magic was kind of in the middle uh, for yeah. season 1 it was a 7.4 whereas the lowest rated one was a 6.8 uh which was CV and Parabellum of course and the highest rated one cam was an 8.1 which was i should say uh Faultine Ambition and uh yeah that's crazy
0: that's insane. I,
1: I did not really like that episode. That's that's the one where it's revealed that um that Lorca has been a bad guy this entire time. That actually turned me off uh, the, a lot of the show. I would have thought the high score would have been "Into the Forest, I
0: Go." I thought that was probably the most crowd pleasing one. It had a lot of really cool action. It had Burnham doing the awesome takedown of uh of Cole and jumping over the railing and beaming out like stuff like that felt like very crowd pleasing. Vaulting Ambition? I, I yeah. guess it's just because of the Lorca revelation. That must be the only reason. There's nothing else in that episode. That's my only guess.
1: Yeah, there's nothing else there. Yeah, in all fairness, Into the force I Go, it's a 7.9, which isn't too far behind Vaulting Ambition at 8.1. So. Mm-hmm. And the other funny thing is, like, uh, Will You Take My Hand, the season finale, despite the appearance of the 1701 at the very end, which uh, had me jumping on my seat, uh, it was still a very low-rated episode at 7.0. And I think it might be the second most rated episode of this season um, after CB Pacum Parabellum. Yeah, it is. Yes. So. Yes. (laughs) uh, Now, okay. So, Cam, I'm giving you numbers like 7.1, you know, (laughs) 8.2. Let me jump over. (laughs) This is for listeners. This is an exercise just for listeners because Cam and I, we've done this before on IMDb. Cam, the highest rated episode was Species 10C for season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. That got a 6.4, which would have put oh, it god. well below the highest rated uh, the lowest rated episode of season 1. The lowest rated episode of season 4 was one um All is Possible in which we had the Starfleet Cadets. That got a 4.9. Oh my god. It's funny cuz we did that episode a while
0: back and I know we talked about this I think off air but not on air about how we did that episode where we ranked the worst episodes of Star Trek and we went through IMDb and took all the lowest rated episodes and then, you know, determined an order. And we did that before Season 4 Discovery. And I think bef- I think we... Did we do that before Season 3 even? Or at least maybe, I don't know, partway through Season 3 or something? Because I, yeah. had we waited, if we had waited and, say, done that now we would include a whole chunk of Picard episodes, a whole chunk of, like, I think almost the entire season of Discovery Season 4. It yeah. would have been a very boring ranking.
1: It's I don't think we could have done that episode based on the parameters that we had set out because, you know, just all the IMDB scores from Season 2 of Picard and from Season 3, at least halfway through Season 3 onwards for Discovery, just some of the lowest-rated things, uh, Star Trek episodes you'll ever find. And here's why people are like, oh no, it, it, those are just trolls. Guess what? Those trolls weren't ranking those season one Picard episodes that low as they were in season two, and they also weren't ranking the Discovery seasons one and two episodes nearly as low as they were in seasons three and four. It's That is just the response people had to those seasons. And it's very much our response to those seasons as well, and I, I wouldn't say that we're trolls uh, by any means.
0: One could make the argument, but I mean I remember True, okay, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the the finale of season two um of Discovery. Like that one got like I think like an eight point something at the time. And also, if memory serves scored very high. Like people were generally into what those episodes were doing. And if you look at the grades on Strange New Worlds, it is so far done very well over on IMDB scoring. So it's like There definitely are trolls. If you go through the reviews and look at some of those episodes, (laughs) they're pretty trollish. But if the show connects, it tends to do quite well. And earlier on, Discovery
1: connected with people at certain points. And Mm -hmm. I think even Season 1 Picard did as well. So I believe that Such Sweet Sorrow, Part 2, the season finale of Season 2 of Discovery, that is the highest rated episode of Discovery on IMDb. Uh, That is an 82 and If wow. Memory Serves is followed very closely with an 8.1 as the second highest rated episode of Season 2 of Discovery.
0: It's no um, it's no mistake that Strange New Worlds was greenlit for its spinoff very quickly Ooh, after Season yeah. 2 of Discovery.
1: No kidding. Uh, and look, I, I don't think this is a very useful exercise at this point with the Strange New Worlds r- ratings because th- it's just so early yeah. on at this point. But as of uh, Friday afternoon as we record here, uh, the pilot episode uh, of Strange New Worlds, it's not even really a pilot if they get kind of a straight to series order. But anyways, um, the first episode, it's getting an 8.3, which exceeds anything uh, Star Trek Discovery has uh, received. It's followed by Children of the Comet at 8.2, which uh, ties the uh, Discovery episode I just mentioned, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2, and then episode three, Ghosts of Illyria, that's also 8.2 as well. And I think it's way too early for us to take much stock in the Ghosts of Illyria rating at this point, just because those those numbers seem to level off. I w- but I wouldn't be surprised if Ghosts of Illyria ends up around, you know, uh 8.0 or
0: 8.1. Yeah, and it's very confidence inspiring that so far Strange New World seems pretty consistent. Like Ghosts of Illyria isn't as good as the, you know, the first episode or the second episode I would say. But it's a pretty consistent quality run so far. If they can hold this cuz they only got to do it for 10 episodes. It's not like the old 26 episode seasons <laughs> or something. If they can hold firm to this and not I mean, I would love to see higher. I would love to see like the all-timer episode in season 1. That's always great to have, but like if they just stick stick to this quality level, they could have a pretty high-ranking first season when you compare it to other Star Trek first seasons.
1: I, I I have a tough time believing, like, they'll dip... Okay, like, this wasn't a bad episode. It just was an underwhelming episode for me. I'm talking about Illyria. I, mm. I have a tough time believing, like, they'll do anything that's wildly below this level of storytelling. You know, I think that, I think they have the ability to be very consistent. Uh, I, I think that we could point to, say... Or discovery season four despite us really struggling with that one i'd still call it like a fairly consistent season like consistently bad but is <laughs> uh, you know but yeah. like i think there's a uh, a certain rhythm that they got into with that show and it's just not a rhythm that works for us but i think that they could get into a similar rhythm with strange new worlds and you could have episodes that will blow our minds and maybe you know I'm not saying we'll get a profit in lace necessarily, but we'll get something that isn't quite up there in terms of what we generally come to expect week to week. Because I just think it's, if you're only doing 10 episodes, I think they're taking their time with those 10 episodes rather than trying to crank out, you know, 26 episodes a season.
0: Yeah, and if you look at one of the really good TNG seasons, you're going to have some, like, dips or something, like, and obviously those are bigger than 10 episodes, but, like, you can look at, like, the best seasons. There's some that you're, like, not bad but you're like yeah oh, that was kind of a mediocre episode we're going to have those in strange new worlds they're gonna arrive along the road but like it just seems like this show seems so far and this is famous last words to even say this but it feels like it's built to be consistently pretty pretty good yeah um I don't I don't have like the concerns I don't you know I don't turn off an episode and be like i i don't know what they're gonna what they're gonna do discovery was like kind of kept you on eggshells for quite a while through season one where it was like i don't know what this show is gonna be whereas this show seems to know very well what it's gonna be and it's gonna be more interesting to me to see that if they keep doing what they're doing does the audience stick with it does the audience get bored um do they want more shakeups as we keep going because Audiences have been taught to expect like epic events on all of their shows, and I'm hoping that they don't feel they have to do that on Strange New Worlds, but we'll find out, I guess, as you know, we continue on.
1: Well, okay, so with season two of Picard, initially we were of the opinion, like, okay, this seems interesting, I don't know exactly what this is going to be for the remainder of the season, and I think by about the halfway mark. That's where you and I had both realized, maybe uh, one episode earlier for me, one episode later for you, but like, generally within like a week of each other, we both realized, oh, this show is going off the rails. And I think if we look back at Discovery season uh, three, in which like, oh, all right, we're now in the thirty-second century, and, <laughs> and we're like, okay, we don't know what this show is going to be, what, what what's going on here. And I think again by the halfway mark of that season, we're like, I think it was like episode Sanctuary. That's when we started getting like really worried. We're like, oh, this show's going off the rails. And it's just kind of, I don't, I already know what this show is. I already know what Strange New Worlds is trying to do. It has a raison d'etre. That's what we've always kind of struggled with uh, when it came to uh, Discovery. And I feel like even if you have an off episode, and I'm talking about a stinker, I'm not going to get worried if we get, like, a real bad episode, uh, you know, even, you know, twice a season or or three times a season because you can bounce back so easily.
0: Yeah, and that's the advantage of Strange New Worlds and also, like, Lower Decks with having more episodic stories is that we can have the Sub Rosa episode. We can go to some very grim territory for one hour of our lives further down the road on Strange New Worlds. It can happen, people, but... We get the next week to kind of bounce back and do something different, like hopefully something better the next week. That's something that like with both Picard and Discovery, like once you start dive bombing, (laughs) basically Uh with your season long story arc, it's tough to pull it back out. You may be able to salvage the story and make it, you know, somewhat successful, but it's not going to be great if you have periods where it's really
1: dipping. Yeah, and also, I I just don't know why it's so hard to figure out. Like, if you've got a really boring story arc that your entire season hangs on, you're going to struggle, especially if you have to stretch it out over, like, the course of, like, 10 to 13 episodes. And I think that just is a consistent pattern with uh, all the live-action shows save, so far at least, for Strange New Worlds.
0: Yeah, and that's why I'm looking forward to Prodigy coming back, just to see if Prodigy can complete its first season arc and really pull it off where we can even say, well, that show seems to understand long
1: form storytelling better than the live action ones. Well, the thing that gives me hope with regards to, uh, to, uh, Prodigy is the, the Kate Mulgrew of it all. You know, she, I think she's somebody who's more than happy at this point where she'll put her foot down. and She'll be like, no, I will not agree to this. Cause like she was even giving them, uh, like, uh advice or, or saying like uh, with regards to the design of hollow Janeway she's like you're making hollow Janeway look too pretty make her look more like me not this idealized version of you know Janeway and they listen to her which I think is great and I, I look I I just want to I I can't wait for the return of Prodigy just to find out what uh I'm coming Chicote all adds up to because that's what I'm excited about <laughs> more than anything else at this point
0: And I was actually reading a uh, story on Robert Beltran on Slash Film today about just his, I guess he was doing a con or something recently where he was talking about Voyager and his frustrations with it. And I'm hoping too, the fact that he's coming back for Prodigy, he had maybe certain things he'd like to see his character do that they're agreeing to versus just like, here, come in and just, you know, give exposition or whatever. Like it feels like He had a lot of frustrations with the storytelling and the relationships surrounding Chakotay and how Chakotay felt very disconnected a lot of the time. So I'd like to see that remedied on this show as well because, again, like Beltran
1: maybe wouldn't have been interested if they didn't promise something. I think we're going to be able to tell what he thinks based on his line delivery. You know, if Mm. it is very engaged line delivery, uh, great. He's happy with it. If he's sounding like William Shatner during the animated series (laughs) where he's clearly phoning it in, um, then I think we we know that he's got problems. I
0: love those old filmation animation shows where you can just tell these actors are just sleeping through their dialogue. Back in the 70s, they were like, who cares? It's cheap. Kids watch, will watch anything. Who cares?
1: <laughs> well, I think George Takei, I think he told like somebody at a convention or something like that. He was getting paid, I think, maybe $500 an episode, if not even less. It may have been like $100 an episode. That honestly doesn't surprise me.
0: No, and my guess is there was not a lot of takes. It was no. basically get them in, read this. You know, It was kind of like the Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons going in <laughs> to do the Krusty doll, where it's like... <laughs> You know, just kind of burning through a few minutes of dialogue and being like, okay, see you later. I got to go. Because especially like, yeah, you know, like $500. And obviously the budget was very, very tight if they wouldn't pay for Walter Koenig.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'm thinking, okay, so these would be like 1970s dollars, you know? So I, I'm thinking like it's pretty much like p- paying George Takei like the equivalent of like 1500 bucks, maybe, maybe 2000 bucks, Like, yeah. Eh. I can't imagine the budgets uh, for that show being anything more than, like, 10000 an episode.
0: Well, you look at the recycled animation going on in every single episode, yep. um, and a lot of just, like, the still frame shots and everything. There was a lot of budget cutting. I bought that book, um, The Guide to the Animated Series, and it's a really beautiful book, but... I think they sometimes, like, kind of overinflate, like, the artistic <laughs> glory of the animated series. I okay. like the show,
1: believe me, but, you know. <laughs> Th- those still frame shots, they were just to match what William Shatner's delivery was, though. Yes, it's
0: true. It- it's perhaps appropriate, though, that the book is riddled with errors, <laughs> like, <laughs> grammatical
1: errors. Okay. Very uh, befitting of the animated series. <laughs> well, it's <was> probably, like, <laughs> I don't know, translated from Bablefish or something like that, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Certainly, lo- certainly read like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. We are going to talk a little bit about Doctor Strange for reasons um, after the end music of this episode, just due to uh, you know heavy spoilers. But uh, you know, in the meantime, we'll be back next week with the uh, you know coverage of the fourth episode of St- Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. And again, leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. Very much appreciated if you can do so. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in very light, straw dummy, Smith.
1: (laughs) You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P, P -P as in pattern buffer daughter, (laughs)
0: O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Get the I.O.
1: Alright, listeners, you've been warned. This is a uh, spoiler-filled, yeah, just a quick discussion of uh, Doctor Strange. Uh, We'd be remiss if we did not mention the uh, Pike Picard spin-off that we finally got to see in Doctor Strange uh, in the Multiverse of Madness, in which we had one Anson Mount return from his much-beloved role in The Inhumans (laughs) uh, as one Black Bolt, and he got to team up with one Charles Xavier, uh, played by one Patrick Stewart, And those two characters were dispatched rather quickly. I have to say the um, Black Bolt death scene in which his mouth is removed and his brain explodes because of Wanda's powers. I thought that was one of the greatest moments in cinema I've seen all year. Um... The Xavier uh, dispatch was much less uh, enjoyable, it was kind of underwhelming, and uh, I don't know, but it was just cool to have those actors at least um, uh, look like they were on screen together <laughs> with visual effects, despite the fact that it's very obvious, those two actors, I don't think they've ever met each other up until this point. In fact, not only that, I would guess, and I think I'd
0: be accurate if neither actor even knew who was going to be on that, Mm -hmm. in that scene with them. Like I would imagine they had absolutely no idea who the other characters were standing to their left and right. Um, but it's crazy to think just that Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness opened on, you know, Thursday night, the same night of the Picard season two finale and the strange new worlds premiere. It was a huge night for Anson Mount and Patrick Stewart. And, uh, Yeah, like, the it's funny because I I think most people were the most excited for the Patrick Stewart as Charles Xavier. It even had a little bit of a music cue of the uh, 90s X-Men theme when he came out in his hover chair. Um, So, like, that was super fun. But for me, it was the Anson Mount as Black Bolt. I just was like, are you kidding? Like, that's (laughs) crazy. Because, like, the uh, Immortals—or sorry, the Inhumans, I should say— was a project that had been in the works for a long time and then it turned into this TV show. And do you remember that ABC was so confident in this TV show. This horrible looking TV show. The trailers looked just pathetic, but they announced they were airing it theatrically yep. in yep. IMAX. Do you remember yeah, that? You. And I think like <laughs> I think like seven people went <laughs> and Inhumans was canceled I think within seven episodes. Yep.
1: It just, I, 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 just coincidentally, I just, I caught a couple scenes, like uh, here or there, just because I heard how bad it was, and I just wanted to see it for myself when it was airing. And I, it's, it's just so weird when you have like legit talent, like Anson Mount, and he's coming off Hell on Wheels, in which he was the, uh, the lead for I think like six, seven seasons or something, along with one Colomini. You know, there's another Star Trek con- uh, connection there, and just seeing like this, like very charismatic actor, just have to like deliver garbage and. It, it, it's uh, is kind of stiff and i was just like okay well I, I didn't think anything of him and so when he ended up on uh discovery i was just like okay i mean other people seem to like him so we'll see where it goes but to just see the character or the actor i should say come so far that i'm actually like very excited to see him like pop up as you know black bolt's you know all these years later in a marvel movie i thought that was kind of cool i like if they leave the door open in another universe for another black bolt appearance that would be pretty fun The thing about Black Bolt is, though, for
0: Anson Mountain, like, I get it. You know, he's a working actor, and they're like, would you like to be the lead of Inhumans? Sure. Like, Marvel's obviously a big brand you want to be working with, but Black Bolt's not the character you want to play. Black Bolt doesn't really speak. Like, that's a character that's very tough to make dramatically interesting, and he is the leader of the Inhumans, and... You know, comic books, they can find ways around that with thought bubbles and what have you. But, like, that's a very tough thing to get across on screen, which is why I would suspect that, well, A, Marvel was developing an Inhumans movie for quite a long time. And then just dropped it instead to be a TV show and kind of shifted their attention to Eternals. Eternals kind of took the slot of probably what an Inhumans movie would have been. But, like... I wonder if they were even looking at the character of Black Bolt being like, this is going to be really tough, really tough
1: to do. I've cracked the code. All he does is text, and you can have little text bubbles uh, over his head in his next feature appearance. I hope that
0: Anson Mount does get to come back on in in some fashion. Like, you could easily work him in in the cosmic side of the Marvel films going forward in the 616 universe, and he could be a fun supporting character, but I think the... uh, the odds of a Black
1: Bolt (laughs) solo feature are very slim. (laughs) Okay. Now, look, I thought that we had seen The Last of Patrick Stewart when it came to Star Trek, you know, when uh, Nemesis uh, uh, was finally released, and then he does come back for this. I really think we're going to see The Last of Patrick Stewart as Picard once season three wraps. Um, But I also thought that we saw The Last of Patrick Stewart as Xavier when I saw Logan, you know, maybe five Mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, is this the last we see uh, Patrick Stewart as Xavier Cam?
0: There are so many questions to that, because I know Patrick Stewart has like teased, like, oh, who knows, I could be back. But at the same time, if you're going to work the X-Men back into the MCU, I would imagine you would want a Professor X actor who's going to be available for you know, who knows how many years. And, like, Patrick Stewart's getting older. I don't know that they would want to make a commitment to having him be their prime Professor X for, like, God knows how many
1: movies and appearances and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, James McAvoy, you can age into it. I, I trust in that. That, I think,
0: is more likely, honestly. Yeah. That or just a young actor that they, you know, recast. I think that's the more likely thing. But... This was a lot of fun to have Professor X back. And fans, I can speak for myself, we're always frustrated. We never got the yellow hover chair in the X-Men universe. We finally got it. I don't know that there's anything more they can really give me that I've been needing from Professor
1: X. Okay. Well, as long as we see Gollum Picard in that same hover chair trying to fight one uh, Captain Pike for it uh, after Captain Pike has his debilitating injury. Sign me up. Okay.
0: Transfer complete.